This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of rheumatoid cervical spondylitis from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Rheumatoid cervical spondylitis is present in 90% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and the diagnosis is often missed. Cervical rheumatoid spondylitis includes three main patterns of instability. These include atlanoaxial subluxation, which is the most common form of instability, basilar invagination, and subaxial subluxation. Again, cervical rheumatoid spondylitis includes three main patterns of instability, which include atlanoaxial subluxation, basilar invagination, and subaxial subluxation. The classification for rheumatoid cervical spondylitis is the Ranawak classification, which is divided into three classes. Class 1 is described as pain with no neurologic deficit. Class 2 is described as subjective weakness, hyperreflexia, and dysesthesias. Class 3 is subdivided into two subtypes, class 3A and class 3B. Class 3A is described as objective weakness, long-tracked upper motor neuron signs, and the patient is ambulatory. Class 3B is described as objective weakness, long-tracked upper motor neuron signs, however the patient is non-ambulatory, and remember you do not operate on class 3B patients. With respect to the presentation of rheumatoid cervical spondylitis, patients have symptoms and physical exam findings similar to cervical myelopathy. They may also exhibit neck pain, neck stiffness, occipital headaches due to the lesser occipital nerve, which is a branch of the C2 nerve root, and gradual onset of weakness and loss of sensation. Physical exam in these patients may reveal hyperreflexia, upper and lower extremity weakness, as well as ataxia, specifically gait instability, and loss of hand dexterity. With respect to imaging, recommended radiographs include flexion extension x-rays, which should always be obtained before elective surgery. CT scans are useful to better delineate bony anatomy and for surgical planning. And finally, an MRI is the study of choice to evaluate the degree of spinal cord compression and to identify myelomalacia. With respect to general treatment of rheumatoid cervical spondylitis, this can be either non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes pharmacologic therapy. Pharmacologic treatment for rheumatoid arthritis has seen significant recent advances and has led to a decrease in surgical intervention. Operative options include spinal decompression and stabilization, in which the goal is to prevent further neurologic progression and keep in mind that surgery may not reverse existing deficits. Now, let's talk about atlantoaxial subluxation in a bit more detail. This is present in 50 to 80% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. It's most common to have anterior subluxation of C1 on C2. You can also have lateral and posterior subluxations. The mechanism of atlantoaxial subluxation is that it's caused by panis formation between the dens and the ring of C1 that leads to the destruction of the transverse ligament and the dens. Again, the mechanism of atlantoaxial subluxation is panis formation between the dens and the ring of C1 that leads to the destruction of the transverse ligament and the dens. Radiographs, specifically controlled flexion extension views, are important to determine the anterior atlantodens interval, or the AADI, and the PADI-SAC, which stands for the posterior atlantodens interval, and the space available for the cord, which both describe the same thing. With respect to the AADI, or the anterior atlanodens interval, instability is defined as greater than 3.5 millimeters of motion between the flexion and extension views. Instability alone is not an indication for surgery. Greater than 7 millimeters of motion may indicate disruption of the alar ligament. Greater than 10 millimeters of motion is an indication for surgery because of increased risk of neurological injury. 
P-A-D-I slash S-A-C. Again, posture, Atlanto dense interval, and space available for the cord describe the same thing. Less than 14 millimeters is an indication for surgery because of increased risk of neurologic injury. Again, less than 14 millimeters is an indication for surgery. Greater than 13 millimeters is the most important radiographic finding that may predict complete neural recovery after decompressive surgery. With respect to treatment for atlantoaxial subluxation, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative is indicated in stable atlantoaxial subluxation. Operative options include a posterior C1-C2 fusion, an occiput to C2 fusion, plus or minus resection of the posterior C1 arch, and finally, an odontoidectomy. General indications for a posterior C1-C2 fusion surgery include an AADI greater than 10 millimeters, even if there are no neurological deficits, an SAC slash PADI less than 14 millimeters, even if no neurological deficits exist, and progressive myelopathy. Indications for posterior C1-C2 fusion is the ability to reduce C1 to C2 so there is no need to remove the posterior arch of C1. With respect to the technique, adding transarticular screws eliminated the need for halo immobilization. Make sure to obtain a preoperative CT to identify the location of the vertebral arteries. Indications for an occiput to C2 fusion plus or minus resection of the posterior C1 arch include when atlantoaxial subluxation is combined with basilar invagination. Resection of the C1 posterior arch for complete decompression leads to indirect decompression of the anterior cord compression by the panis and may be required if atlantoaxial subluxation is not reducible. Finally, moving on to an odontoidectomy, this is rarely indicated. However, it is used as a secondary procedure when there is residual anterior cord compression due to panis formation that fails to resolve with time following a posterior spinal fusion. Keep in mind that a panis often resolves following posterior fusion alone due to the decrease in instability. Again, panis often resolves following posterior fusion alone due to the decrease in instability. Moving on to basilar invagination, this is also known as superior migration of the odontoid or SMO, as the tip of the dens migrates above the foramen magnum. This is present in 40% of rheumatoid arthritis patients and is often seen in combination with a fixed atlantoaxial subluxation. The mechanism of basilar invagination is cranial migration of the dens from erosion and bone loss between the occiput and C1 and C2. With respect to imaging, radiographic lines to be aware of include the Ranawat C1-C2 index, McGregor's line, Chamberlain's line, and McRae's line. With respect to Ranawat's C1-C2 index, this is characterized as the center of the C2 pedicle to a line connecting the anterior and posterior C1 arches. The normal measurement in men is 17 millimeters, whereas in women, it is 15 millimeters. The distance of less than 13 millimeters is consistent with impaction. Keep in mind that the Ranawat C1-C2 index is the most reproducible measurement. McGregor's line is the line drawn from the posterior edge of the hard palate to the caudal posterior occiput curve. Cranial settling is present when the tip of the dens is more than 4.5 millimeters above this line, and keep in mind this can be difficult to determine when there is dens erosion. Chamberlain's line is the line from the dorsal margin of the hard palate to the posterior edge of the foramen magnum. This is abnormal if the tip of the dens is greater than 5 millimeters proximal to Chamberlain's line. Again, it's abnormal if the tip of the dens is greater than 5 millimeters proximal to Chamberlain's line. The normal distance from the tip of the dens to the basion of the occiput is 4 to 5 millimeters. This line is often hard to visualize on standard radiographs. 
McCray's line defines the opening of the foramen magnum. The tip of the dens may protrude slightly above this line, but if the dens is below this line, then impaction is not present. With respect to an MRI, the cervical medullary angle of less than 135 degrees suggests impending neurologic impairment. Treatment of basilar invagination is operative, and options include a C2 to occiput fusion or a transoral or anterior retropharyngeal odontoid resection. The indications for a C2 to occiput fusion include progressive cranial migration of greater than 5 millimeters, neurologic compromise, or a cervical medullary angle of less than 135 degrees on MRI. The indications for a transoral or anterior retropharyngeal odontoid resection is brainstem compromise. Now let's talk about subaxial subluxation. This is present in 20% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and often occurs at multiple levels. It's often combined with upper C-spine instability. Keep in mind that lower spine involvement is more common with steroid use, males, seropositive rheumatoid arthritis, if nodules are present, and in the setting of severe rheumatoid arthritis. The pathophysiology of subaxial subluxation is panis formation and soft tissue instability of the facet joints and the lushka joints. With respect to radiographs, subaxial subluxation of the vertebral body of greater than 4 millimeters or greater than 20% indicates cord compression. Again, subaxial subluxation of the vertebral body of greater than 4 millimeters or greater than 20% indicates cord compression. The cervical height index, that is body height over width of less than 2.0, is almost 100% sensitive and specific for predicting neurological compromise. Again, the cervical height index of body height to width of less than 2 is almost 100% sensitive and specific for predicting neurologic compromise. Treatment of subaxial subluxation is always operative and typically involves a posterior fusion and wiring. This is indicated when there is greater than 4 millimeters or greater than 20% subaxial subluxation plus intractable pain and neurologic symptoms. Some operative complications to be aware of include failure to improve symptoms, pseudoarthrosis, and adjacent level degeneration. With respect to failure to improve symptoms, keep in mind that the outcome is less reliable in a Ranawat grade 3B in which the patient is objectively weak with upper motor neuron signs and the patient is non-ambulatory. With respect to pseudoarthrosis, there is a 10 to 20% pseudoarthrosis rate and this can be decreased by extension to the occiput. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 73-year-old female with a history of rheumatoid arthritis presents to clinic with worsening bilateral upper extremity paresthesias, clumsiness, and weakness. On exam, she has a positive Babinski, intact sensation to light touch, and 4 out of 5 motor in the bilateral upper extremities. A preoperative T2 mid-sagittal MRI demonstrates cervical spondylosis and a C1-C2 panis with brainstem compression. What is the most appropriate next step in treatment for the upper cervical spine? And the choices are 1. Observation and soft collar. 2. Spinal dose steroids. 3. Posterior fusion with or without decompression. 4. Transoral panis resection alone. And 5. Transoral panis resection followed by posterior occipital cervical fusion. The correct answer to this question is 3, posterior fusion with or without decompression. So periodontoid panis resulting in cervical myelopathy can be safely and successfully treated with occipital cervical fusion alone with or without posterior decompression. 
To quickly review, periodontoid panis is hypothesized to result from chronic instability at the craniocervical junction. Given that periodontoid panis is noted in degenerative arthropathies or following trauma, there is also mechanistic support that this mass can form in the setting of mechanical instability without an inflammatory component. As these lesions can compress and kink the spinal cord and produce myelopathy, previous reports have advocated for transoral decompression of the ventral pathology. However, complications associated with the transoral approach include cerebrospinal fluid leak, wound dehiscence, meningitis, vertebral artery injury, delayed postoperative oral feeding, and retropharyngeal abscess. Multiple case reports have indicated that stabilization across the craniocervical junction can result in resolution of the panis. Del Grande et al. provided a case report of two patients with rheumatoid arthritis presenting with early cervical spine involvement. They further performed a Medline literature review of this issue. They concluded that cervical spine involvement is not uncommon in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, although it is rare in the early stages of the disease. Steinberger et al. examined the morbidity and mortality of the transoral approach to the cervical spine. They performed a retrospective cohort study of 126 patients undergoing this procedure. They concluded that anterior approaches lasting longer than four hours are correlated with increased morbidity and mortality. Chiang et al. performed a PubMed review comparing a combined anterior and posterior approach versus a posterior-only approach for the treatment of myelopathy in rheumatoid arthritis patients with cranial vertebral junction instability. They found higher morbidity with anterior approaches. Furthermore, posterior approaches were found to be statistically superior in terms of panis reduction and stabilization. Moving on to the next question. A 68-year-old woman with known rheumatoid cervical spondylitis presents with progressive neck pain, hand clumsiness, and gait instability. She has been treated with methotrexate and etanercept for several years. All of the following are indications for cervical decompression and surgical intervention except, and the choices are 1, cervical medullary angle of less than 135 degrees on MRI, 2, 3.5 millimeters of change in the atlanodens interval, or ADI, between the flexion and extension views, 3. Posterior atlanodens interval, or PADI, of less than 14 millimeters, 4. Progressive myelopathy, and 5. An ADI of greater than 10 millimeters with no change on flexion-slash-extension views. The correct answer to this question is 2. 3.5 millimeters of change in the atlanodens interval between the flexion and extension views. So the patient has been treated with agents for rheumatoid arthritis and is developing symptoms concerning for rheumatoid cervical spondylitis. All of the answers are indications for cervical intervention except greater than 3.5 millimeters change in the ADI on flexion slash extension views. With the introductions of disease-modifying anti-rheumatic agents, or DMARDs, the incidence of rheumatoid arthritis patients undergoing cervical spine surgery has decreased significantly. Basilar invagination, atlanoaxial instability, and subaxial subluxation are the three most common manifestations of cervical disease. Multiple studies in rheumatoid arthritis patients with untreated or poorly controlled disease have led to the development of a set of measurements that identify patients who require surgical intervention and predict outcome after surgery. Additionally, progressive neurological compromise and refractory pain are indications for intervention. Kim and Hillebrand reviewed management of the rheumatoid cervical spine and outlined parameters for surgical intervention. These include a PADI of less than 14 millimeters, a cervical medullary angle of less than 135 degrees, progressive neurological deficit, refractory pain, atlanoaxial impaction as determined by migration of greater than 5 millimeters rostral to McGregor's line, 
and subaxial canal diameter of less than 14 millimeters. Bowden et al. analyzed 73 patients followed for rheumatoid cervical spine disease with an average follow-up of 7 years. They found that the PADI correlated with paralysis. Patients with a PADI of less than 10 millimeters had no recovery, and all patients with a PADI greater than 14 millimeters had full recovery. Moving on to the next question. A 58-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis has progressive neck pain, upper extremity and lower extremity weakness, and difficulty with fine motor movements. Examination reveals hyperreflexia with mild to moderate objective weakness, but the patient has no difficulty with ambulation for short distances. What is the most important preoperative imaging finding that predicts full neurologic recovery with surgical stabilization? And the choices are 1. Basilar invagination of less than 1 centimeter. 2. Anterior atlanodens interval of 4 millimeters. 3. Posterior atlanodens interval of greater than 14 millimeters. 4. Rotatory subluxation of less than 10 degrees. And 5. Subaxial subluxation of less than 3.5 millimeters. The correct answer to this question is 3. Posterior atlanodens interval of greater than 14 millimeters. So again, Bowden and Associates article presents compelling evidence that patients with rheumatoid arthritis and neurologic deterioration in the setting of C1-C2 instability are more likely to achieve some improvement if the posterior atlanodens interval is greater than 10 millimeters on preoperative studies. All the patients in their series who had neurologic deterioration and a preoperative posterior atlanodens interval of greater than 14 millimeters achieved complete motor recovery. Moving on to the next question. A 60-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis has long-term neck pain and new onset of difficulty holding cards in her weekly poker tournament. She does not complain of weakness, but states she has become clumsy in her old age, fumbling with buttons and dropping her change. On exam, she has hyperreflexia, but no weakness. Radiograph shows atlanoaxial subluxation. She's considering decompressive surgery, but wants to know if she will recover function. Which radiographic marker may predict neural recovery after decompression? And the choices are 1. Posterior atlanodens interval of greater than 13 millimeters, 2. Atlanodens interval of less than 5 millimeters, 3. Subaxial subluxation of less than 3.5 millimeters, 4. Basilar invagination of less than 0.5 centimeters, and 5. Rotatory subluxation of less than 10 degrees. The correct answer to this question is 1. Posterior atlanodens interval of greater than 13 millimeters. So the clinical presentation is consistent for cervical myelopathy due to atlanoaxial subluxation in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis. Bowden et al. found, quote, the most important predictor of the potential for neurological recovery after the operation was the preoperative posterior atlanoodontoid interval, or PADI. In patients who had paralysis due to atlanoaxial subluxation, no recovery occurred if the PADI was less than 10 millimeters, whereas recovery of at least one neurological class always occurred when the PADI was at least 10 millimeters. All patients who had paralysis and a PADI or diameter of the subaxial canal of 14 millimeters had complete motor recovery after the operation. They found no correlation with the anterior atlanoodontoid interval, or ADI, with the severity of paralysis or the potential for recovery. Manzi et al. report that the most helpful radiographic measurements to evaluate atlanoaxial subluxation are the anterior atlanodens interval, or ADI, and the posterior atlanodens interval, or PADI. Atlanoaxial subluxation greater than 9 mm and a posterior atlanodens interval less than 14 mm correlate with neurologic deficit. 
They argue non-operative management does not change the natural history of cervical disease and recommend posterior arthrodesis in patients with neurologic deficits. And moving on to the final question. A 63-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis has long-standing neck pain and new onset of difficulty with manual dexterity such as buttoning her shirt and holding small objects. She reports difficulty walking up the stairs and reports she feels increasingly unsteady on her feet. On exam, she has 4-plus patellar reflexes. Flexion and extension radiographs show atlantoaxial instability with a dynamic increase in the ADI. What is the most appropriate treatment at this time? And the choices are 1. Immobilization in a soft cervical collar for 6 weeks. 2. Halo immobilization for 6 weeks. 3. Transoral odontoid resection. 4. Occipital cervical fusion with instrumentation. And 5. Posterior C1-C2 fusion with instrumentation. The correct answer to this question is 5. Posterior C1-C2 fusion with instrumentation. So the patient in the question stems radiographs show atlantoaxial subluxation in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis and symptoms of cervical myelopathy. Her symptoms are severe and progressive, and therefore a posterior C1-C2 fusion is indicated. Again, Bowden et al. found that the posterior atlantodense interval, or PADI, is predictive of neurologic injury in patients with atlantoaxial subluxation and for neurologic recovery after surgery. They found that all patients with a pre-op PADI of greater than 14 millimeters had complete neurologic recovery after decompression, while patients with a pre-op PADI of less than 10 millimeters had no neurologic improvement after decompression. Monzi et al. report that the most helpful radiographic measurements to evaluate atlantoaxial subluxation are the anterior atlantodense interval, or ADI, and the posterior atlantodense interval, or PADI. Atlantoaxial subluxation greater than 9 mm and a posterior atlantodense interval less than 14 mm correlates with neurologic deficit. They argue non-operative management does not change the natural history of the cervical disease and recommend posterior arthrodesis in patients with neurologic deficits. That's all for this review about rheumatoid cervical spondylitis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.